0: I'm so sure you're so sure you're so sure you're so sure you're so sure
1: It's another edition of the Talky Mets podcast here on this Tuesday, June the 4th, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at MetsamorizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I uh, hope everybody's doing well. Come to you a little later than normal. Figured I had a chance after the long West Coast trip to take a day or two, marinate on the trip, some of the things that happened, see if there's any news that popped up, and then uh, come to you right before the Mets start. A six-game homestand and a pretty important stretch, uh, 10 ga- basically uh, 10 home games uh, out of the next 12, with, a home- with an off day in between, where uh, they're going to really need to make some hay. Uh, joining me uh, over the weekend, I had a chance to catch up with, uh, I haven't talked to him in a long time, but... Matthew Silverman uh, has authored books, a ton of books, a book about the 73 Mets. But uh, a recent book that has just come out is about Shea Stadium. Shea Stadium remembered the Mets, the Jets, and Beatlemania. We'll get a chance to talk to Matt. And uh, with the Mets coming home and uh, the summer ahead of us, and also a chance to realize that it's been over 10 years, well, over 10 years since Shea Stadium was demolished, but City Field is 10 years old, and no one's really talking about it. The year that the Mets are celebrating, 1969, City Field is 10 years old. So Matt will talk about his uh, project, uh, going back and looking at the history of Shea Stadium, some of the things he learned, get his thoughts on City Field, chance to just take a, a step away from uh, the grind of the baseball season and have a fun segment with uh, a well-known author, a big Mets fan, and somebody that I think all of you uh, probably know and have enjoyed his work. At some point, now uh, about a week ago, I came to you right before the Memorial Day holiday, and we had we were talking about the replacements. They had just come off a six and one homestand, and can they survive the West? And I had told you that if I could sign for three and four now, looking at some of the the gaps in the offense, the struggles with the starting rotation, knowing they're going into LA to face the Dodgers, uh, the best hitting team in baseball, a team that was hot. And then going into Arizona, a team that's plucky uh, on their home field, I would have. And I still stand by that. The shame of it all is that the Mets were two bad innings away from coming home with a four-win road trip. And this podcast, and I think the narrative that's out there in the media, would be so different. That's amazing how things work in sports. And sometimes how we have to step back and have some context because two bad innings— an historically bad ninth inning with Edwin Diaz. Nobody would have predicted that against L.A. And then a bad eighth inning, perhaps a mismanaged bullpen eighth inning in Arizona on Saturday night. I think a lot of ways that one, I think, stuck in everyone's crawl a little bit more because you could debate the bullpen management. When Diaz loses, when Diaz gets hit, at that point you just shrug your shoulders and say, hey, had a bad game. But the one on Saturday, I think, is the one that, that really stuck in everyone's craw. And the difference between, quote-unquote, I hate to say this, mission accomplished because three and four is not a great mission. And coming home, and the questions have started up again. Joel Sherman wrote a piece yesterday about Mickey Calloway. Mickey, you know, basically, Mickey, for the first time, maybe in his tenure, showed some agitation and anger towards his team in the postgame. Funny that's the one time that there's no audio that I could find to hear Mickey's words. But he said basically I think what all of us have said uh, in in one way or another. It's time for them to either put up and be the team that we think they can be or get out of the way. And, you know, the road trip is a synopsis of the season where it's so close yet so far. You have two bad innings that could have made it for – a 4-3 and road trip, a split in L.A. and a win in Arizona. And you look at it so far because all season you can say if this, if that, you know, even Familia, who has been bad this year, is a synopsis of the season where he'll come in and, like he did against Avilia in the seventh inning uh, after DeGrom came out, he'll look vintage Familia. And then he comes out and he hits a batter and he gives up a hit and, he looks clunky and uncomfortable. He looks like a guy that's, you know, in a sweat box that uh, he needs some AC that's like, you know, he's, you know, tugging on himself and trying to figure out his mechanics. It's it's almost uncomfortable to watch him. It's it's painful to watch him even for that one inning. So um it, it's a synopsis and, and now really we'll find out whether there's gonna be some meaningful baseball the rest of the year because the time is now. You've got three against San Francisco. You've got three against uh, Colorado. They go to Yankee Stadium for two games against a team that, similar to the Dodgers, is hot. It's a buzzsaw. And then you got a four-game series against a very good Cardinals team. that gave the Mets a ton of trouble earlier this year when they were playing well. And then they go on another road trip. And this road trip is even more meaningful in the sense where they're playing the Braves. They're playing the Phillies. They go to Chicago uh, before they come home at the end of June to play Atlanta at City Field. And... Probably by the road trip, we'll know what this team is about. This team is three games under, and I can't see any scenario with the next twelve games where they got to kind of go eight and four. I mean, I think they've got to get to that road trip above five hundred. That would put them at a game above five hundred. Nothing sexy, by the way, uh, and that's why this hurts so much. Because if he had won the two games, if he had came home at five hundred or maybe even above. You look at things and say, look, you know, uh, you got to come here. It's an important homestand. But I think it's almost critical for them to get to the road trip above 500. And that's going to be 8-4 against, uh, you know, teams like the Cardinals and the Yankees in the middle. The Yankees at Yankee Stadium with a two-game set. It's, you know, these are not rollover teams. The Rockies are playing better. The Giants are always a team when you have a, a, a matchup like against Bumgarner like you have tonight. You never know how, you know, a guy like that could come in and dominate. And then the Cardinals are a team that, you know, have a ton of offense. You know, Adam Wainwright almost threw a no-hitter the other day. Nothing's going to be a given. But we'll see how the Mets' season comes and, and what comes out of it over the next uh, two weeks. I think in two weeks, right around Father's Day, I think we'll really have a feel of where this thing is going. And, and then the question is, the conversation will turn is, what's next? Because for the past two years, when the Mets have struggled and they've had these June swoons and it looked, and it was clear they weren't going anywhere in that given season, I kept telling you, hey, you got to stay the course. You have to be able to realize that you have this pitching. They've made some mistakes. Some free agents didn't work out, injuries, whatever it may be. But you need to stay the course. And I still believe that. And... I don't know if ripping this team to, this, to, the, to the studs is going to happen anyway, not with the way the general manager came in and the way he talked, but there will be changes, and I think there will be some thought about ripping the rotation apart if this team in the next two weeks stumbles and continues to play sub-500 baseball. Uh, it'll be a question about what the direction they will go, who are the core players that they'll stick with going forward, and how can they continue to honor the mandate that they put together, which was compete now, compete in the future. You saw a little bit about, about that last night. We're not going to get into the draft today because we'll have a, a draft show later in the week, but had a chance to get a couple of high school bats, uh, Brody Van Wagenen's first draft. So we won't know about how that turns out for a few years, but Mets have already started to begin the process of restockpiling their farm system that they pulled away from over the winter to put a team together that competes. But ultimately, can they use—and I think the two names that are going to be key to the next two weeks but also could potentially be a conversation in July will be Zach Wheeler and Noah Syndergaard. Now, I know Noah Syndergaard has some more years of control. Zach Wheeler is a free agent. But eventually, the Mets have to think if they're going to restock things or this season's not going to go well and you still want to compete going into 2020— I think that those two guys are two names that will be widely talked about. Two contenders who may need to add to their rotation and may be willing to give up something. And the Mets have to be careful because with Wheeler, he's a free agent. So at the end, you don't know what he's gonna, you know, where he's gonna be next year if you hold on to him, unless you want to try to sign him to an extension. And look, there's some concerns with that because Wheeler still has. And I was talking to a scout over the weekend that was at the game on uh, Friday night. And he even said, he goes, look, the guy is always dragging. There's still those concerns about the elbow. Um, you know, things like that uh, always can lead to another arm problem or potentially down the road, a shoulder problem. And as you get into his 30s and you sign him to a long-term deal, the risk gets even greater. When he was a young pitcher, there's no risk for the Mets to lose two years. It's a shame they lost two years of uh, Zach Wheeler and his cost-control years over to injury. You wish that happens never happens to a pitcher, but it happens later on when he gets expensive and you get some, some mileage out of the the cost-controlled years. But, you know, that's a risk. Now, Syndergaard's different because if you trade him and he rediscovers himself and he's still trying to rediscover himself and he battled in L.A. and I'm not ready to give up on Noah Syndergaard, you're going to be facing him over the next few years and say, geez, if we had just held on for a couple of more years. But it, with the right deal. With a deal that brings some young players that are close to Major League ready, that can have an impact, whether they be young pitchers. You start the cycle all over again. Maybe you start the cycle with DeGrom at the top of the rotation and some young up-and-comers that Wheeler and Syndergaard used to be with uh, Mats kind of being that guy in, in the middle there. And, and then you go out and you get some veterans to round at the rotation. And maybe you have some – or you, you trade them for some offensive pieces, and then you go out and you get some veterans to – build a different rotation, a team more balanced or a team more focused on offense uh, and less on on balanced starting pitching, guys that can be professionals and get you through six innings rather than guys that potentially could dominate but seem to always leave you wanting. And maybe that's ultimately the situation here, that managing expectations, like I talk about all the time, has been something that we're not doing with this staff. Maybe this is as good as they can be. Maybe Matz is going to be a little too above league average pitcher. Maybe Syndergaard was a flash in the pan. Uh, Wheeler, uh, he's a guy that's that's good, but he's also going to be uh, somewhat inconsistent. And within a game, may give you that one bad inning, sort of like what used to happen to Sid Fernandez back in the day. So we'll see. I talked about the rotation stepping up, and I think to a certain degree they did on the trip. I still think there's room to be better. The offense, to me, continues, even with the replacements to be a team that could score four to five runs a game, plenty of offense to beat the teams, even teams like L.A. that they were facing on the road. And look, with the bullpen, which had been good going into the road trip, uh, that's where uh, this team has struggled probably for the better part of a decade to get it right, and I think a lot of teams right now are struggling to get it right, and... If Familia is going to be bad, then it's going to be hard to see this team being able to navigate the late innings. The problem you have there is Gazelman. I still wonder if he's more long-reliever starter than guy that you want to go to late in a game with high-leverage situations. Lugo is a guy I would like to go to, but if he can't go back-to-back days consistently, and we'll see because he just did get off the disabled list, injured list, I'm sorry, then maybe then you have to start to consider that Lugo will be... Starter, because if he can't go back to back out of the bullpen, then you got a situation where you either you have an opener that you can use, or you gotta find a way to go go into that rotation. And you and the injury he had, the tendonitis, which was f- bicep tendonitis, is a precursor, and you know he's got the, the the slightly torn UCL does tell you there's some ligament issues going in there, and we know he has a, a partially torn ligament, eventually that probably will tear. Uh, and I think the Mets are trying to get as much mileage out of him before that does, and hopefully it never does, and maybe he manages it for the rest of his career. But I think that that's something that they they have to take a look at. But it starts tonight. Madison Bumgarner, Noah Syndergaard, ten home games in twelve days. The Mets have to go eight and four on this on this uh, stretch. If they do that, they get to that very critical road trip, and then that'll be the next conversation. It'll be a very similar conversation to what we had uh going into the west they have to go out there they have to be ready to compete and win which they have not done on the road they've done a pretty good job at home of that they have done a horrible job on the road which is kind of against what they've been over the last couple of years get healthy get Cano back get McNeil back that solidifies and rounds out the roster it will be interesting to see how they handle uh the depth on the roster because Cano and McNeil are going to mean maybe goodbye to Echeverria. Uh, I'm sure Altair will be uh, the next one to go. You know, Matt Kemp is at AAA. What, what's his status to bring a right-handed bat up to this uh, to this team? So there's a lot of questions coming up. Uh, we'll have some more answers later in the week. Uh, we'll definitely get into the draft. I know there was a draft yesterday, so I, I'm not even going to get into that today. I just wanted to kind of uh, recap the trip. You guys all know what the situation is. And, and, again, I'm standing by what I said. It's a very disappointing trip. And the dangerous part for Mickey Calloway now, where he, you know, he, this, you know, I said they're probably going to have him as a manager for the rest of the year. But the dangerous thing is if you start to lose the players, that's when this thing will go and spiral out of the way. Got a little discontent with Wilson Ramos with this. Is he, you know, is he not going to ever catch Jacob DeGrom? It seems like it's still kind of lingering out there. At least the media is making it that way. Uh, DeGrom not happy about being pulled in the over-conservative nature of handling his uh, injury. Mets have been conservative at injuries under this new regime from day one, and I think that's a conscious decision that they've made. Uh, So if you start to see the players crack, that's when Mickey's job is in jeopardy. I stand by what I said two weeks ago. They're going to be who they're going to be this year, and I think that that's going to be the case, whether it's Callaway, Riggleman, and I find it hard to believe that you could get your long-term replacement outside the organization now. I don't think you should make a move until you have your long-term or the or the guy that you think will be the long-term solution in-house now. So you, you usually don't do that in the middle of the season. Could happen, but very unlikely. Um, so you stick with it. And every time they lose two or three in a row, the media is going to circle. Joel Sherman's going to have those articles where everybody continues to say he should have went to Kansas City or Baltimore to cut his teeth before he came here and he's not ready for New York. And I'm not saying they're totally unfair. I'm just saying at this point, let's let this play out and let's not do a post while the guy's still in the job because it just comes across like everybody's looking to push him out and get him fired. And is it a surprise to see Mickey, who has made his whole tenure about supporting the players and being positive, go so negative on Sunday? Yes. But it was clear after they took that the second gut-punching loss on Saturday night, that this team came out a lot, very dead on Sunday and maybe not ready to compete and was looking more to getting out of the West Coast and going home. And that's a concern. And, and, and if I'm Mickey Callaway, that's a reason to, to lay into them. And again, we don't know how he treats these guys behind closed doors, but just because he goes to the media and presents a certain front does not mean that that's who he is behind closed doors. We're assuming and let's remember, there have been managers in this town that have gone through the cauldron and have come out on the other end. Joe Girardi was one of them. Joe Girardi, myself included, when I used to cover both teams at the old NYBaseballDigest.com, I thought he should have been fired by two or three times earlier in his tenor, tenure. And the media circled the wagon, just like this, like with Callaway. And he came out, and he survived, and he won a championship. And even after he won a championship, there was still that thought that he was the wrong guy for the job to get the most out of that veteran bunch. And here you go, and the guy wound up lasting 10 years in the position. So, you never know what could happen, but I do know that the next 12 games is pretty much where this team is going to make hay, where they're going to set themselves up for their next test, and then first maybe the first test that they'll pass on the road later this June, and then it'll be very soon before we know the direction of where this is going, and what the team should do, and that hopefully will be, we continue to talk about them competing for a playoff spot, but if not, Then it'll get really interesting about us talking about what will they do to move forward, because that question, in my mind, is not as clear as it's been in prior years. It's actually much more murky than ever, and it's much trickier, and it's much more critical to get it right. Let's take a quick break. When we return, Shea Stadium remembered. Matthew Silverman will join us as we talk about his new project, his book, The Mets, The Jets, and Beatlemania. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back
0: with more right after this it's goodbye to the polo grounds farewell to the old and welcome to the new shea stadium the new home of the mets to be ready for the opening day of the 1964 season here is a stadium that has been designed to be the greatest ever built for baseball with a perfect view of the playing field from every seat not a column pillar or post in the entire park to obstruct the view 55,000 seats, and nearly all of them within the foul lines. Everything about this stadium has been designed for the comfort and convenience of the fans. A series of ingeniously arranged ramps to avoid jamming of crowds before or after game time. 21 banks of escalators make the long, hard climb to the upper grandstands a thing of the past. There's a subway line that runs right to the ballpark. With a pedestrian overpass that leads from the Willits Point IRT station right to the stadium entrance. Bus lines, too, will go directly to the stadium. And nearby is a station of the Long Island Railroad.
2: We're
1: back. Uh, joining us is uh, author of a new book, Shea Stadium Remembered, The Mets, The Jets, and Beatlemania. You guys know him also for a book about the 73 Mets and 100 Things Mets Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. It's Matthew Silverman at Metsilverman on Twitter. Matt, it's uh, a pleasure to have you on. How you doing on this uh, weekend Sunday?
2: I'm doing very well, thanks.
1: So, Shea Stadium, as I was going through the book, and uh, I looked at the, the the date. I'm like, I can't believe it's been over a decade since Shea Stadium was demolished. Uh, City Field's been around 10 years. Uh, I guess it's kind of amazing, and I'm sure that played into you putting this book together. How time flies, and how long it's been. How how you know City Field being 10 years old. That's not a, a young stadium anymore.
2: No, and um, you know, run into people and. They've never, you know, they never went to Shea Stadium or they didn't, um, you know, all their memories are of City Field or, you know, they just happen to not have really been much to either because so many people experience the game now in different ways than you or I probably grew up doing it. And um, it's interesting uh, what people's thoughts are. And I I have experienced a lot of people that 10 years actually mellows out some of people's memories of it and makes turns them from nostalgia to from. You know, from nausea to nostalgia in some cases.
1: That's absolutely right. And before I get to Shea Stadium and some of the memories that you put together in this great book, um, are you a fan of City Field? I know it's, it's a different ballpark uh, and, and it's had its issues maybe from a dimension standpoint after it was opened up that they've worked on. But what are your thoughts about City Field being that now you've dived in and, and lived through, uh, what was it, about 50 years of uh, Shea Stadium?
2: Um, you know, I, I, like Citi Field. It's, it's a nice ballpark. It's, um, you know, one of the more interesting, uh, newer parks. It will re- actually reminds me a lot of citizens bank ballpark. I know some Mets fans won't want to hear that, but it's very similar. It seems to me. And, um, it has some nice touches of, of different things. And I, I, run into a lot of Yankees fans who say they like it much more than they like the new Yankee stadium. So, uh, you know, the backhand I'll tell, I'll take the backhanded compliment, and I've been there a lot, but you know, to be honest, uh, it's just not really the same because I didn't grow up there, and you know, the game has changed a little bit, and the way people appreciate it has too.
1: Absolutely, Matt Silverman, uh, author of the book Shea Stadium Remembered, is joining me here. Uh, you talk about after ten years, you know, everybody was ready. I think uh, I think there was some old timers that were really like nostalgic about Shea Stadium, but there are a number of people who were ready for a new ballpark, a ballpark with more amenities. You know, everybody seemed around the league to be getting newer, better ballparks, and the Mets were playing in this 1960s football-slash-baseball stadium. But um, as you look to the history of Shea, and you did a, a really thorough job in this book. You went through you know, from its inception all the way through to some of the, uh, the great events. Uh, it wasn't as bad, I guess, as everybody thought. Is that a fair way to, to put it on? Maybe it was, uh, you don't appreciate something until it's gone.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I never really had a problem with it, um, you know, in, in any way myself. I mean, there were uh, parts of it that weren't great. You knew you weren't going to get, um, you know, the best food that was available, that was offered. And once you had gone to other new ballparks and all the stuff they had, it did make Shay seem a little wanting. But um, I was uh, fortunate to get a nice bit of time with Howie Rose explaining to me what it was like when he was a kid. And Jay was pretty new. And, um, you know, he's like, I went there to watch the game. He's like, I would bring a sandwich. I didn't worry about food. (laughs) You know, he would, he like went through, he had $2, went through all of the uh, expenses that it required to, um, you know, to get into the place. And, uh, you know, he wasn't worried about the food. He still isn't, you know, and there's a lot of people that are like that. And, um, you know, a lot of modern ball fans have uh, more concerns than um, what's going on in the game.
1: What did you learn doing this project about Shea Stadium that you didn't know going into it?
2: Well, I have to say I learned a lot about the Jets. I had been, you know, been to the uh, – um, I think I'd only made it to actually one Jets game, but I uh, it was a great game, and I actually got to write about that as well during um, the year they, they made the playoffs after not having been in for like 10 years. And I learned a lot about them and actually a lot how uh, about how Shea Stadium was – was uh, had played a key role in not just the Jets' um, uh, development, but in the AFL. That the moment they moved into Shea, they suddenly were drawing fifty-five thousand people. When at the Polo Grounds, they were barely drawing fifty-five hundred. And um, you know, it, and uh, when they signed Joe Namath, that and some other events sort of led to the. Um, uh, uh, amendment uh, or agreement that uh, that put the AFL and NFL together and led to the Super Bowl and all the stuff we have today and um, you know learned about uh, a bunch of different Mets stuff. Uh, Skip Lockwood's book I came across while I was um, was researching this and uh, was an inside pitch and he gave. I never really spent much time in the underneath part. You know when I went out to the bullpens, they didn't really encourage you to go out there or. Uh, you know, when uh, uh, with a with a press pass and all that, or I just didn't do it for whatever reason. And uh, he really explained it great and how you know you could just drive like a a golf cart. They would take out to the bullpens and everything like that, and just sort of the way it. You know, everything was so symmetrical there um, that you, you don't see anymore. And that that was uh, that was something that I never really thought about. And um, you know, uh, was kind of, kind of grooved. On. I actually put in a whole new chapter. Uh, in the book, based on um, you know on that revelation, I came across
1: Matt Silverman, author of the book Shea Stadium Remembered, is joining me. Great book, uh, like I said earlier, ten plus years since City Field's been open, since Shea Stadium's been demolished, and it's uh, a really great read. And it it goes through the history of that ballpark, not just with the Mets, with a, a bunch of other stuff, the Jets, and, and other non-sports events. Uh, for me, what was interesting, Matt, is The line, the history line where the the Dodgers and the fight with uh, Walter O'Malley and Robert Moses, the Dodgers leave, uh, the Mets are born, Shea Stadium's born after they spend a couple of years uh, in the polo grounds. Uh, Shea Stadium, uh, that should have been the new uh, Ebbets Field. Is that a fair way of putting it?
2: Yeah, that is the place they took. um, uh, They took Walter O'Malley to say, "Okay, you want a new stadium? This is where it's going to be. And he did not want it there you know, a, it wasn't in Brooklyn and B, they, you know, he, he came up with a better, both plan that worked much better for the Dodgers. And along the way, coerced the, uh, the giants into joining him because it would have been a much more difficult situation to set up, especially with, you know, how much longer it took to fly uh, and travel places uh, to have the giants out there. So a team, you know, going out to California, had two stops to make instead of just one. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, it should have been, would have been, but he didn't want it there. And Robert Moses wasn't going to bend. And, um, you know, the Mets, uh, the, their biggest uh, hurdle was to try and get uh, National League Baseball back. And they, they they jumped through a lot of hoops to try and do that and even you know, sort of faked out the uh, National League uh, by, um, you know, saying they were going to start a new league. And they never questioned that that was where they were going to be. And uh, New York sort of um, did everything it had to to change some of the rules in order to have a public publicly funded stadium, which was, uh, the you know, the, the thing that made the uh, the Mets reality.
1: I don't know if the Dodgers would have worked or the fan base would have worked going out to Queens. What, what are your thoughts, having done the research? And obviously, it was a better scenario for the fans than them going 3,000 miles away to L.A., but... Can't argue with that move now. All these years later, but uh, do you think it would have worked putting the Dodgers in Queens and calling them the Brooklyn Dodgers? It, it would have been a bit clumsy.
2: Well, I mean, you know, you have the the New York Giants and the New York Jets playing in New Jersey. It seems clumsier to me. But, but uh, you know, at the time, I I do think it would have rubbed some people the wrong way. But also uh, in the you know late fifties there was a lot of people that were moving from Brooklyn to other areas, whether it was Queens or Westchester or New Jersey, Connecticut, wherever. Um, so maybe it would have, you know, w- would have worked out uh, all right. I mean, the, 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 biggest hurdle that they had and one of the things that Mets helped um, overcome was expansion, itis, which uh, major league baseball had. And no, none of the other leagues had really expanded other than maybe basketball, which was still in its infancy, uh until you know the early 60s and um and then the Mets actually came in a year after the American League expansion one thing I did learn from doing this although probably learned it a little while ago but it always amazes me that the National League was still playing 154 games in 1961 while the American League was playing 162 and they didn't they didn't join the 162 uh uh movement until the following year when the Mets came in uh which enabled the Mets to lose 120 games which uh, you know, is easier with, with uh another eight games added on there and, and just all the the things that are going on in baseball now that if they just left it at hundred and fifty four games, I think the you know, the season would be a little less clumsy. Um, there might even be more playoffs. Uh, you know, you wouldn't be having teams necessarily playing when it's uh you know, twenty five degrees out at night and um you know, where whatever uh city gets the, you know, Boston or God help you if the twins ever made it in their uh, night games out there.
1: Absolutely, Matt Silverman joining me, author of the book uh, Shea Stadium Remembered. Uh, we talked earlier about uh, the Mets, you know, and how they were born and the Dodgers leaving. But the, the, the field was named after William Shea, uh, and I don't think he gets a lot of press or publicity a lot of the times, even when the ballpark was up. Shea Stadium was just a name Shea Stadium to a lot of fans, but. He's the guy who got nationally baseball back to New York and, and hence why the stadium was named Shea stadium.
2: Yes. He did the, uh, all the dirty work. Um, they, they, you know, uh, his law practice actually suffered as well, but, um, he was a, uh, a doer, uh, you know, the type of person that you put in charge of something you want to get it done and knew all of, you know, I wouldn't say where the bodies were buried, but knew how to coerce people and, you know, uh, tit for tat and all the other stuff that, uh, a New York lawyer back in, like the Mad Men era was able to, uh, to do. And, uh, you know, the Mets (laughs) ownership doesn't always get a lot of credit, but, uh, even he said that, you know, five minutes after he died, they would be naming it after, uh, some corporate name and they never did change it. And actually they, uh, you know, they, they, uh, uh, at the time, you know all the other stadiums. A lot of the other stadiums, Riverfront Stadium changed the name, and Jack Murphy Stadium, named after Bob Murphy's brother, changed the name. And Shea it remained until uh, the day it closed, and they even retired the name and put the Shea Bridge, which you know the uh, City Field has was criticized initially for not having a lot of uh, you know stuff coming over from Shea, but they did have the Shea Bridge, and they did have uh, you know the Apple as well as some other. Uh, things that came over from there and for a while those were really the main um, uh, things that were brought over from Shea until they they, they sort of have made it more Mets history centric since then. Obviously the Mets
1: are, are the, are the are Shea Stadium. They're the, the reason the ballpark was built but there are a lot of non-sporting events that you uh, chat about in this book. Uh, that must have been fun for you. I mean what are some of the things that you took away from some of those non- Mets Jets events that uh, mark the history of Shea.
2: Well, you know it was a it was a municipal stadium, so they um, the Mets had a lot of say in it because they had uh, they were the reason d'etre for uh, Shea Stadium, so that they, you know they always kind of hold the Jets over a barrel with that. But they had a lot of concerts. They had the first uh, you know sort of a landmark stadium concert of its type when the Beatles came and. Despite not having that many concerts, I think, you know, Giant Stadium had way more concerts over its life. Uh, Shea, um, you know, is is renowned for that. You would have people from England didn't even know what baseball was, but they knew Shea Stadium because the Beatles had played there. And then later the Who played there and, uh, um, you know, other bands, Rolling Stones played there, Bruce Springsteen, you know. It didn't have as many acts as a lot of places did, but a, most of them were... Uh, you know, um, uh, grade A, you know, t- top of the line. And then Billy Joel as the final concert uh, orchestrated that and had Paul McCartney come in and play the last song, uh, which was fitting.
1: And one of the things I think always hurts Shea, it maybe hurts City Field a little bit. I know they're trying to work on it and, and it has a political component to it is that, it was a literally it's in the middle of nowhere, Shea Stadium. you had the the chop shops across the street. I think in your book, you have an overhead of before it was built, it was what a dump
2: uh, or, or it literally a was a dump, yes, a, yeah,
1: it was a dump, right? So you know you're building a stadium in a dump. I get it, you know, open you know area, you know real estate stuff to come by in New York. There's politics for a publicly funded stadium. I get it. But when I went to Pittsburgh and I've gone to some other areas where they have that ambiance around the stadium. Uh, I always say, imagine if the Mets had this around City Field or Shea Stadium. I think the ballpark, both ballparks would
2: be looked at differently. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I, you know, I do think there's something to be said about that. I, I you know, don't know that it works around there because, you know, they had the, um, I've been to other stadiums where they had lots of stuff going on, but, um, you know, it doesn't seem like. Whenever I'm there, it's like the place clears out as soon as the game's over. Maybe that's because there's not that much to do there. Um, And, uh, you know, there is a lot going on there. There's just not that much going on directly, you know, in the quarter mile or half mile around Shea. I mean, even Tommy Agee had a bar there that didn't do well. Um, And, uh, you know, McFadden's is there. But that's really the only place of its type. You know, that may change, but uh, it is, you know, if you – if you're nostalgic about the city. I guess you need to be. You can be nostalgic about all those car, these uh, you know, the salvage yards which were there before the Mets arrived and um, are still there now. Absolutely.
1: A uh, couple of things before I let you go. You know, if you go and I, and and I don't know if you've ever done that and look at the original plans for City Field, it's so different. I think it was 1997 or 98 when they started talking about a new ballpark. Then 9/11 happened. That had to obviously for good reason, table the ballpark, but it was supposed to be a retractable dome. I mean, it's almost like City Field. What has been born, uh, uh, you know, out of uh, the the 2.0 Shea Stadium is totally different than the original plan. I don't know if you've ever done any research on that or looked at that.
2: Yeah, I did. I did look at that, and also at the original Shea Stadium. I mean, I have a, a scorecard from 1962. And the, you know, the mock-up they have of the new stadium, which I didn't I don't think even, you know, was called Shea, uh, they, they said it was going to be a dome stadium. So that didn't happen. And the same with this, you know, uh, in both cases, it makes a lot of sense because a city like New York should be able to have something that opens up like, you know, a lot of other, a lot, a lot of smaller cities have, um, uh, you know, where you can have the Final Four, you could have the Super Bowl, uh, lots of other stuff but it just didn't work out and a lot of it whether it was 1960 or or you know the year uh 2006 it it was about money that it cost a lot more to put on a roof and um it just didn't happen and after what the uh, what happened with um you know they were going to have they had all the plans ready for in uh, 2001 and then they were all scrapped that i think they just took what they could do and they they had a promise and one of the things that they, that helped get it there was the uh, Olympic bid they had that was controversial in its own right, that they would expand it if they needed to, uh, even though everyone knew that it probably wasn't going to happen. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I guess domed stadiums in New York is just not meant to be, but having seen other ones that once you have a, a dome stadium in place, it's nice to have, but the players and a lot of other people – you you end up playing a lot of games indoors on nice nights where you could, you know, when you're sitting in the upper deck at City Field, you can see the sunset and there's you know, there's a lot of nice views like that at Chase Stadium too. I I you know. And if Shea had been built with uh, you know, roof on it, they would have invented AstroTurf that many years earlier.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. Before I let you go, what for you personally is your uh City Field memory? It may not be something that's, you know, the most public or the most uh, dynamic, but it meant something uh, to Matt Silverman.
2: You mean City Field or Shea Stadium?
1: Uh, Shea Stadium. I'm sorry. Shea Stadium.
2: Okay. Um, uh, let's see. Cause um, you know, I would have to think that the best game I went to was the first playoff game they had that I was able to go to was um, in 1986, the game three against the uh, Astros. And the series was tied and Lenny Dykstra, you know, they were down, they were trailing for much of the game and, uh, Lenny Dykstra at the home run um, that won the game, and that uh, you know, uh, you know, other I was also there for the grand slam single game, but the fact that it was '86 and Lenny Dykstra, and they never had a playoff game in my lifetime there uh, was uh, you know made that one uh, stand out for me. And although the going to the 2015 World Series Game Three there uh, at City Field was the one time that I really felt uh, a you know full on buzz like of like you really like this place is something's happening here, which you don't always get at uh, at City Field, just because it's it's sort of a different vibe and peop and people are different than they were uh, during Shay's heyday. But um, you know, one day maybe we'll be old enough to work, to uh, live long enough to write a book about City Field and its uh, grand history. That's for sure. So what
1: do you got going on? I mean, you got Metsilverman.com, dot com at Metsilverman on Twitter. Uh, the book is Shea Stadium. Remember the Mets, the Jets, and Beatlemania. Uh, give uh, the listeners an idea of what you have coming up. Uh, obviously, if there's anything you want to pop about the book, events, what have you.
2: Well, that's a good point. I'm actually going to uh, Cooperstown and speaking at the Hall of Fame on this Wednesday, June the 5th, at one o'clock. Um, that's sort of, you know, Father's Day is a big, uh, a big day for, um, uh, for books about uh, sports and baseball in particular. And so, you know, anyone who's interested, they can contact me through com if they want a, you know, um, uh, autographed copy for their uh, their dad or their mom or, or whomever. Um, or they can, you know, buy the book, send it to me if they want, or, you know, or contact me that way. Or just pick it up and read it, and um, and uh, that's, that's just dandy, too. Listen, it's
1: been fun going down memory lane. This is a great book. You did great work on this, because... Uh, I was really enjoying it. You learn something. It brings back great memories. Let's catch up again. Thank you so much for being generous with your time on a weekend. I appreciate it. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Thanks a lot. That's uh, Matt Silverman at Silverman on Twitter, uh, dot com. The book is uh, Shea Stadium Remembered, The Mets, The Jets, and Beatlemania. We'll be back with more Talking Mets podcast, and we'll wrap up right after this.
0: Hey, Mets fans,
1: I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, Then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions
0: about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled, all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to
1: MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, Online.com, and get Metsmerized today. trip going down memory lane with uh, Matt Silverman. And uh, I'll leave you guys with this before we wrap up. I always get asked, well, what's your favorite Shea Stadium memory? And I was at the final game at Shea, which was a surreal day, the day they were trying to get into the postseason. They had all these former Mets there. It was raining. They were playing Miami. Uh, they had just come off a big win with Santana shutting the Marlins down the day before. And, and you knew this was the, could potentially be a great day or it could be an awful day. And then you're trying to celebrate after the game one of those two outcomes um, and move forward. And I always thought it was an odd situation. It was so that period of time when the Mets went through 06, 07, 08, and all the drama that led to, (laughs) I guess, the more drama with Omar Minaya getting fired and led to Sandy Alderson was really all coming to a head at that point. And I was at that day, and that's not the most memorable it was a an odd day. It was a memorable day, but for the wrong reasons. But I always go back to Game Three of the two thousand NLDS, the Benny Agbayani game. And I was at postseason games in ninety nine, and I went to a few postseason games. I went to games against the Cardinals uh, uh, later in that uh, that postseason in two thousand. Had been to a number of games in oh six, uh, and 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 over the years. You know, just tons of games. You know, it's hard to remember every one. And I will just say that that night stood out because it was a dramatic game. I was sitting in the upper deck of Shea Stadium, literally the last row. The wind was whipping. It was so cold. Um, It was such a long game. And you just hope on a game like that, especially because it's a pivotal game in a five-game series. Those game threes in a five-game series, you don't want to lose them. Because you're down two-one, now your back's against the wall. You know you're going back to San Francisco at that point for pivotal, you know, for decisive Game Five. Tough place to play. They barely survived it the first time, and um, it was just amazing when Agbayani hit the the home run. It was like a combination of joy and relief, and I just want to get out of here. I'm so cold. And you knew they had to turn it around quick because there was a, a a late afternoon game the following day. And the Giants were a team that won 100 games, I believe, that year and were a really tough team. And, and to navigate with the bullpen, uh, the Mets had a very strong bullpen, getting through that lineup a few times, basically almost playing a game and a half to get through that lineup, uh, just the one memory that sticks out to me. I always remember the the, the crack of the bat, seeing Bonds. What, what I remember the most was not that I was following the ball because you didn't know if it was going to go out. Chase Stadium, similar to City Field, the ball used to just die. And you're looking at Bonds, and you're looking at Bonds, and then when he s- turns around and looks, you know that ball's going. And uh, and then I just remember seeing the scrum at home plate, the celebration, and uh, the Mets going up 2-1 and and putting themselves in a position to win the series, which they did a day later. So that, that's my Shea Stadium memory if you want to throw one of those in there. I, I think I've talked about that on the show before, uh, but I figured I'd throw that out there to end the program on a high note. Uh, we will be back on Sunday. We will be doing a draft show on Sunday, kind of recapping the the draft, which is, is currently ongoing. Uh, we're also going to take a look at where the Mets' farm system is now and how Sandy Alderson did, because now his drafts from 11 and 12 are the seasons that could potentially lead to the Mets having some some players on the roster of either impact or or importance maybe even draft like you know 13 14 let's take a look at that because it's interesting for us to see you know do the mets have some things here that can help them this season there's some arms that they acquired via trade or drafted that may be able to help this bullpen that's struggling it doesn't seem like there's too much offense left to help them right now in terms of young talent so it looks that's probably why they're going Offense early in the uh, in the first round this year. Uh, that's something that the team, you know, clearly needs uh, work on up throughout the system uh, in a lot of ways. But our, our old friend who now works for SNY, uh, SNY's Mets blog, Joe DeMeo, will be joining us on Sunday. So stay tuned for that. I think that's going to be a fun segment. It's been a while since we talked to Joe. I've done tons of stuff with Joe over the years when he just was some kid doing prospects uh, that I had a chance to meet in a Mets chat room that now he's doing work for SNY and, and one of the more respected names uh, out there in the Mets uh, f- uh, fandom that, uh, that they look to as far as what his opinion is on these prospects and, and, and drafts. And, and he's done so much work to get not only good information but get to know these guys, get to understand the process. So I'm looking forward to that because Joe's been a friend. He did some work for me at the old NYBaseballDigest.com. And now he's going to come on and contribute to this program. And I know that's going to be a fun segment, and I know you guys are going to enjoy that. So stay tuned for that. That'll be coming out on Sunday. And uh, and away we go. So I want to thank Matt Silverman for joining us today. You can check him out on Twitter at Matt Silverman, And then go to his uh, book, Shea Stadium Remembered, The Mets, The Jets, and Beatlemania. Check it out at a bookstore, Amazon, whatever. I want to thank the good folks over at MetsMorizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Media, And you get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire i'm your host mike silva enjoy the rest of your week we'll be back with more talking mids podcast later on this week take care everybody